Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. The prophet Isaiah spoke more about the kingdom than any other prophet in the Hebrew Bible. Consequently, his book is a phenomenal place to begin developing our understanding of what the kingdom will be like. Stitching together his various snapshots, we encounter a magnificent collage detailing a new world full of peace, justice, and healing. This is Lecture 3 of the Kingdom of God class, originally taught at the Atlanta Bible College. To take this class for credit, please contact ABC so you can do the work necessary for a grade. Here now is Podcast 86, Kingdom in Isaiah. This lecture is called The Kingdom in Isaiah. And what I intend to do is work through a number of prophecies in this book and just read them together and... What I want you to do is write down different attributes of the kingdom. The point is for you to get swept away by God's dream as prophesied by Isaiah about what the world's going to be like. Uh, Because ultimately, it's going to be awesome. And so this is going to be a very uplifting, uh, I think, exercise working through these prophecies. All right, Isaiah 2, verse 1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that he may, we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, he shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. This up on the screen is a picture of the unofficial mission statement of the United Nations, which is from Isaiah in New York City by the UN headquarters. And it says, They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And it says, Isaiah. <laughs> it's kind of a beautiful monument, don't you think? All right, so what would you pull out from this section as far as Characteristics about the kingdom. Peace, Peace, right? So that's verse 4, where it talks about transforming the weapons of war into the tools of agriculture, which is pretty great. So in their time, that would be a sword into a plowshare or a spear into a pruning hook. God is going to judge between the nations, right? So that's, that's one of the issues we face today, right? Nations are judging each other and... They're not doing a very good job. You ever notice that? There's all this news about... What's, what's in the news these days? Syria. There's a conflict in Syria. And uh, America and Russia are both involved somehow and <laughs> upset at each other and trying to figure out what to do. 
It would be great if God would just judge the issue and say, all right, this is how it's going to be, and you're all going to have to agree with it, and you don't have weapons anymore either. I mean, that would really change the world, wouldn't it? What else do we have here? Many people come and say, I don't know if that's just talking about all the nations will treat them, so it's uh, yeah. inclusive. Yeah, there's a, that's, that's a good way to put it. It's inclusive. All the nations are coming in, and they're saying that they want to learn how to live based on what God says. The way it says it here is, teach us his ways that we may walk in his paths. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, I mean, it gives you some really good kingdom ammunition, right? Some good characteristics about the kingdom, a vision of the future where the nations no longer battle each other, but instead go to God's capital to learn how to live. (laughs) It's absolutely gorgeous. Look at chapter 9, verse 2. We'll start here. All right, chapter 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in the battle tumult and in every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's pretty cool, huh? We can easily see this in reference to Jesus coming and being born, right? I think Matthew picks it up in that way. But there's, I think, a greater truth in that when Jesus comes the second time, then those who are in darkness will once again see a great light and that he will bring the light to the world. I mean, Jesus said in his own ministry, he is the light of the world, or the way, the truth, and the light as well. What is all this stuff with uh, garments rolled in blood? What do you think that's talking about in the boots? You see that in verse 5? Yeah, articles of war, yeah. Instead of swords and spears, it's talking about the actual war costume, whatever they wore and then the boots that they would wear. Typically, you would wear sandals, right? So the boots are for warfare. And these are all going to be burned up because you're not going to need that sort of thing in this age. Why? Because a child's born, a son is given. And this one is going to have, verse 7 says, the government on him, on the throne of David. So, you know, we could talk about the name given to the child. I think that might take us too far afield for this discussion, because there's a, a named child in chapter 7, Manuel, in chapter 8, Meher Shal Hashbaz, in chapter 9, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Does Manuel mean again? God with us? Or? God is with us. That's how I would translate it. <laughs> the name obviously refers to some qualities of him or qualities about God frequently as well. Like Elijah means, uh, my God, Yah. My God, yeah, it's time for dinner. I mean, we would never do that 
in, in English. We'd be like, that's blasphemy. But ancient Hebrews named their kids after God very frequently. Or Eli, Eli, right? That means my God. My God, could you come over and uh, give me the remote control for the TV? My God, what? <laughs> but that's what his name was, you know, and nobody had a problem with that. The kid's name was literally my God. <laughs> so uh, obviously there's some cultural stuff that we don't want to over-literalize the name here. But verse 7 is clear that the government is going to be on his shoulder, right? And what I love about it is it talks about peace, but then it says, there will be no end. You see that in verse 7? He's going to be on the throne of David, so that's the throne of David restored. That's another aspect of this as well. And look at that description at the end of verse 7. It talks about justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Right? So, I mean, it reminds me of the Pledge of Allegiance. We're going to talk about allegiance later on in the week. But the, it ends with uh, justice and peace for all, Right? Isn't it justice and peace for all? So this is justice and righteousness forever. I, just, I don't know if it was it, it, part of the inspiration behind that or not, but um, look, we need justice. The world needs justice. People get away with too, too much. And in that age, justice will reign supreme. Peace will reign supreme. Just, even if you just had justice and peace and you didn't have much else, you could build on that. You could thrive in that context, right? Look at chapter 11. But it gets better. But wait, there's more. Chapter 11 is one of the most beautiful of all of them. I don't know. I, I, I'm going to say that a lot, I think. <laughs> I, I mean, I love the kingdom prophecies in Isaiah. They're just so sublime, really. Chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall... Strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Just taking those first five verses there, what do you see? A lot of justice. A lot of, justice, a lot of fairness, right? What else do you see? He's very empowered by God. I think that's a key point. That's a key point, because you think about... I mean, currently we're in an election cycle, and... Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton are running for president with a couple of other people that aren't allowed to go to the debates. And it seems like their plan is to just figure out what to do and then do it. And that's a lot of what the presidential debates are about. It's like, hey, I'm going to do this, or this is what they're supposed to be about. I'm I'm going to enact this policy, and this is how I'm going to run the country. That's, That's what... You look for in a candidate, at least in the old days, and yet even if somebody, even if you did find somebody that seems really qualified and seems like they really know what to do about the problems that America faces or that the world faces if it's a different uh, country, it's so hard to make decisions because so frequently world leaders don't have enough information, and yet they're forced to still make a decision without enough information. 
That's normal procedure. Some of you probably remember the controversy over the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, and George, this is George W. Bush. He had intelligence that said there were these weapons there, and so he invaded Iraq, right? And then they didn't find the weapons in Iraq. And then, of course, the war changed focus. Now it's about liberating these people from this terrible dictator rather than finding these weapons that were actually going to threat America. But the point is, he acted, I'm sure he acted the best he could given the information he had, and he got it wrong. And you know what? America and other nations get it wrong all the time. I get it wrong all the time, right? I'm sure you get it wrong. But look, in this day, when Jesus is on the throne, the shoot from the stump of Jesse is in power. He doesn't depend on what his eyes see and what his ears hear. That's what we need from a ruler. That's what we need. And it's a, was it a sevenfold spirit, right? It talks about all these different aspects, right? It's got wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. There's six aspects to the spirit that is uh, indwelling him. That's what anyone who's in charge really needs. They need God to give them the scoop. Tell them what is the best course of action. If you look at Jesus in his ministry, especially in the Gospel of John, you see that over and over he says, these are not my words. It's in John chapter 11, the end of the chapter. He says, these are not my words. I'm only telling you what the Father has commanded me to say. And he says later on, these are not my deeds. These are not my works. These are just the works that the Father has given me to do. In John 5, he says, I can do nothing on my own. I can do nothing on my own. In another place, in John 6, he says, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me. Jesus is already doing Isaiah 11 in his ministry. In, I'm not that he's like ruling over the world, but that he's got the Spirit influencing him, and he's transparent to it, he's submissive to it, so that whatever God wants him to do, he's always doing. And so he's already proved that he is this guy. He is this guy. And when he comes back, he's going to make the right decision every time. I'm talking about not, not like the wisdom, oh, we polled a bunch of people in a focus group and we decided that if you do this, then most Americans will like you. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about Solomon's wisdom, where you say, cut the baby in half and the true mother comes forward. That's the kind of wisdom that comes from the Spirit of God. And so that's the kind of wisdom that's going to power the ruler of the age to come. In verse 3, too, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. I mean, there's something about that, somebody that gives due fear and due respect and honor to God, and that delights in that. And then uh, verse 4, talking about the justice again, specifically it singles out the poor. The poor are most often the ones who suffer injustice because they don't have the resources to fight for justice the way the wealthy do. And the meek of the earth, blessed are the meek, right? They shall inherit the earth. That's what he says later. Uh, okay, and then his belt is righteousness and faithfulness, right? And then we get to verse 6 with the animals, right? The wolf will dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened, fattened calf together. What happens today if you get a wolf and a lamb in the same room? Let's just say we all left the room. And we brought in a wolf from that door and a lamb from this door, and then we closed both doors and looked in the window. They probably wouldn't snuggle, right? They probably wouldn't lie down together and warm each other in the cold air conditioning, right? <laughs> what are they going to do? The wolf is going to go after the lamb and try to eat the lamb, because that's what wolves do, 
right? And so in the age to come, what happens instead is it says the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. I love that. There are two things here. There's a, a ferocity in animals today where they want to attack each other and people sometimes. And then there's also a fear in animals. You can't just go up to a squirrel and pet it. Has any of you ever tried that? The closer you get to a squirrel, the farther it runs up the tree, right? Because they're afraid of you, right? And you, you have like a stray cat. I mean, except for dogs. Dogs are like the anomaly. But that's probably because they've been domesticated for so many generations. Uh, a lot of dogs will just like come right up to you. But, uh, and, and some cats as well. But most animals, you, a wild animal, you go up to it, it doesn't even matter usually even if it's bigger than you. And it, it's just like out of there. You go up to a deer and try to pet a deer. You're not going to get anywhere near that animal. And, and if you could, you should fear because it's probably got rabies and it's probably going to bite you, right? So the fear, I mean, when I, when I read this, right, you see in verse 6, it says, a little child shall lead them. That's the fear of being removed both ways. They're not afraid of us. We're not afraid of them. A child can lead a lion, you can have a lion as a pet, as a child in the kingdom age, right? Verse 7, the cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Some people want to say these are all metaphorical. None of this is literal. I feel like it goes into too much explanation for it to be a metaphor, you know what I mean? Like if it just says, and the, even the animals will be at peace with each other. I'd be like, all right, well, maybe that's a metaphor or something for just like general peace. or I don't know what it would be a metaphor for. But like you're going to specific nitty-gritty details here of, of these things. And it's still poetic language. It's still got that beauty to it. But I think it, I, I, call me primitive, but I'm just going to go with what it says here. Right? And, and, that's, and it's, a, it's a beautiful idea. To, to look forward to. The idea that the animals would be together like that. Uh, verse 9, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. There's a new one, right? The kingdom has a world full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And it goes on from there. Oh, I think I do one more verse. In that day, the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. <laughs> Just a little bonus verse there. Um, and and it, goes, it goes on from there, but I, just, I, I love that. It's a wolf and a lamb, but always in the pictures it's a lion and a lamb. I don't, I don't know, maybe it's just they like the L sound or something, but it's pretty cool. All right, the next one is Isaiah 25. So that was one, two, three. Isaiah 2 looked at the peace between the nations. Isaiah 9 looked at the ruler a little bit and the peace between the nations again. Isaiah 11 looked at the ruler a lot more and the peace between the nations and peace between the animals. And now we get to Isaiah 25 and we got some fresh material here, some really significant prophecy. Look at Isaiah 25 verse 6. It says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up 
on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is Yahweh. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. Some of the most beautiful verses in the whole Bible. Not just the book of Isaiah, but it's just absolutely staggering. It starts with a party. It starts with a dinner. There's meat and wine. I never realized this was biblical, but I've always felt that those were the two best parts of the meal Anyhow, over against the vegetables and the potato and the other stuff. The meat and the wine. I mean, that's where, that's where the action's at. That's just my opinion. But uh, verse, verse uh, 6 here, 25 verse 6, it has this beautiful picture. And the thing is, we don't think about where the meat comes from. And, and we don't think about where the wine comes from. Because we don't live in agrarian society. Maybe some of us do. But the, the only way you get meat, right, like a big piece of steak... Is, is from a cow that has been able to eat for a long time, right? And has been, has been raised up, right? And it has been eating grass or whatever kind of stuff a cow eats, right? Whatever kind of feed they give it. But, you know, generally grass and that sort of thing. And uh, you only have grass if it rains. And so things that th- this, this is a picture of things have gone well for a long time, right? The rain has been falling... The fields have grass in them. We have enough to feed the cows as well. And the cows are now big enough that we can kill them, we can eat them. And this is the very end of that long process. You butcher the cow, and then you, you, you prepare the food, and then finally you cook the meat, and then last of all, it's on your plate, and you have a fork, right? And that's the very end of this really long process that starts with, you know, the rain falls and the grass grows and the cows eat and they're little tiny cows, calves, right? And then they grow up, right? And so the very end of that process is the time when you actually eat the meat. Same thing with the wine. You have to plant the vineyard. You have to cultivate the, the vines, right? And, and make sure that the animals don't come in and eat all the grapes. And then you, you have to have a good enough harvest that it produces a ton of grapes. And then you have to take your, your shoes off and squash those grapes down and make the grape juice, and then you have to ferment that, and whatever else goes into that, and then finally at the end of that, maybe you wait a couple of years, because it says aged wine, right? And now you put it in a glass, and you drink it. You know what I mean? And so it's the very end of that process. That's what happens at this meal. And we're so, in our modern time, we're so separated from the process. I felt I wanted to share like all the steps that go into that. Uh, but that's not all. It's not just a big feast. Verse 7, this is staggering, right? He will swallow up uh, the veil, the covering, right? Verse 8, he will swallow up death forever. God will kill death. That's really a big problem we have as people, right? That we die. One might even say that's the biggest problem, <laughs> right? Uh, and, and so God is going to solve that problem. He's going to swallow up death forever. And then it right, jumps right into the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. I mean, so on the one hand, you have death 
swallowed. I mean, that, there's a kingdom characteristic, right? Death swallowed. And then here's another one, tears wiped away. In other words, that's the idea of comfort, that God comforts his people, that they are going to be okay. There's no reason for crying now that God has saved us. And then the reproach of his people. He's going to remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. The reproach is talking about the insults, the slurs, the ostracizing that happens because you choose to be with God and choose to live for God. The persecution, the persecution that you would suffer or you know, when people would make fun of you and that sort of thing. That's going to be removed because God's people are going to be elevated to the highest position. So you're going to have honor instead of insults. And that's just going to, there just won't be anybody making fun of Christians or in the age to come. It will be said on that day, and I, I just love verse 9, where it talks about how people are going to say, you know, like, after all the dust settles, this is our God. We waited for him, that he would deliver us. Right? This is the one we've been waiting for. Here he is. This is Yahweh. This is our God. And uh, this is not to be underestimated, too, at the end of verse 9. Be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So in the kingdom age, you have joy, you have rejoicing, you have gladness. You have people that are happy. <laughs> How many self-help books are out there today designed to teach you how to be happy? How to live your best life now? Or how to succeed and get what you want out of your career or your relationships, right? I mean, these books sell like hotcakes in the bookstore. And yet, in the age to come, that will be normal. That will be solved, that whole thing. There's the uh, wiping away the tears there. Let's go to Isaiah 35. So Isaiah 35, verse 1, we read, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. This is the first time in Isaiah that we read about the restoration of the land. Right? We've been looking at these other aspects, but now it talks about the land itself. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and sing. Obviously, that's a metaphor, right? Land can't sing, right? But what, is, what does a metaphor mean? It means it's producing bountifully. Isaiah lives in a part of the world that doesn't, it's not like Georgia. It doesn't have all these trees and grass all over the place. I mean, it is a very arid place. And so this aspect of the deserts being healed or the dry land flowing with water, this is like the best way to explain the restoration and the healing of the world that needs to happen to somebody that lives over there. If you were in Siberia, you wouldn't be talking about deserts blossoming so much as the snow melting, right? So that things could grow once again. Uh, but desertification is a, is, is a problem. I, have you ever seen the world and, and seen how, how many deserts I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of staggering. 20, uh, 33%. One third of the land surface yeah. is desert. There's, there's a lot of desert in the world. And that's a problem that God's going to solve. It shall blossom abundantly, verse 2, and rejoice with joy in singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. Look, the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God, is the desert blossoming. Isn't that interesting? Because God invented the world. God invented plants. And seeing things work in the way that he designed them reflects on his glory, doesn't it? 
pretty cool. Verse 3, strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. That's beautiful. A lot of these texts, I'm, why I'm actually reading them out to you, not just summarizing them, is, is for, for a couple of reasons. One is, there's nothing like going to the primary source directly. I might misinterpret something, but look, you're reading it with your own eyes here. Another is that a lot of these prophecies, a lot of the things that we've looked at, are going to come up again once we finally get to look at Jesus. All right? Because this text right here for Jesus was deep in his heart. Deep in his heart. And for him, it was mission. Ministry, mission. This is, this is what he thinks he's doing. In his, in his, and, and we'll look at that later. But it talks about blind people. I mean, can't even imagine how difficult life would be. As, you know, in our technological age, it's a little bit easier, right? But it's still got to be so hard to be blind or to be deaf or to be mute or to be lame. You know, these are difficult situations that I don't think any of us in here have. I bet no matter how... Uh, whole we feel now, even if both eyes and both ears and our both legs are working, compared to what it, the resurrection reality will be, there's going to be a jump. You know what I mean? Where it's just like, <sighs> reality will be so much richer, I, I imagine. Look at, uh, well, and it, I love too uh, how it says in verse 6, the lame man will leap like a deer. It's not just like he can walk again, like you know, we'll be in the uh, Olympics in the kingdom, and you know the lame people just win every time. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, you see somebody hopping by, and you're like, "Oh, they must have been lame." No, I, I don't. <laughs> I don't. I don't know if this is to be. I don't want to over literalize it here. But the point is that God's going to heal the land, and He's going to heal people's flaws and disabilities and problems that we have with our bodies, right? So land and bodies both restored. And then we get more land in verse 6, the second half. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And there's going to be a highway there and no lions. So God's going to fix this old world. I'm excited about that. Look at chapter 51. Chapter 51, verse 3. I guess I should go there myself, telling you what to do. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. Give attention to me, my people, And give ear to my nation, for a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. A lot of similar statements that we've already read in Isaiah here, right? I just love how it uses the word Eden there. Because that is exactly what I've been saying. The idea of how it was in the beginning, so it will be in the end, right? He's going to make Zion like Eden, 
And it goes on. My righteousness, verse 5, draws near. My salvation has gone out. My arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens. Look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment. And they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Look at chapter 60. So I think on that one, the main one is just the uh, part about Eden. But, you know, also the salvation and righteousness will be forever. I mean, that's pretty good, too. Voice of song being heard in Zion. I don't, We've already mentioned joy and gladness, but the voice of song, I mean, that's, that's nice, too, right? That's a characteristic of the kingdom, not just rejoicing and, like, shouts like, yay, but, like, actual singing and thanksgiving and that sort of thing. And then we get to chapter 60, which is one of my favorite chapters in Isaiah. <laughs> These are all my favorite chapters in Isaiah, actually. <laughs> and uh, I, I, have, I have written down to basically read the whole chapter. Yeah, to read the entire chapter. And that is way too ambitious. So uh, I'm just going to read a little part. Now, the key to reading Isaiah chapter 60 is to realize that it's not talking about a person and it's not talking about a nation. It's talking about a city. Okay, and, and the way you know that is later on in the chapter, it actually says Zion. 10-14. Is it 14? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Zion, the city of the Lord. Okay, so throughout the chapter, it says you, 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 you. And you, and you think, oh, me? No, it's not you. It, it, Israel? No, it's not Israel. It's specifically speaking to the city of Zion which is what we call Jerusalem. So now as you read it, you're like, ah, ooh, okay. So Jerusalem is like torn down, but it's going to be rebuilt, right? And that's part of the kingdom hope. And look how it starts. Arise and shine for your light, you, Zion, your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover over the earth and thick darkness the people, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. The nation shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes around and see. Look, Jerusalem, look around yourself. They all gather together. They come to you. This is the image of people streaming into the city. Your sons shall come from afar and your daughters will be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. It's a vision of the city of Jerusalem once again receiving its children. It's the the people of Jerusalem and also wealth. I mean, they didn't use like paper money the way we use. They had gold and silver and frankincense is an expensive spice, right? And so they have these different things coming into the city. We're talking about actual physical material wealth coming into the city, something that most people's eschatology does not have anything to do with, right? Because everybody knows in the future we won't use money anymore. I mean, isn't that what they said in Star Trek? Anyhow. 
So that's why we don't base our lives on Star Trek. Uh, verse 7, All the flocks of Keter shall be gathered, and the rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. You shall come with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. <laughs> verse 10, Foreigners will build up your walls. Verse 11, Your gates will be open continually. A city that doesn't sleep. Day and night they shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations, with their kings led in procession. And anybody that doesn't serve you, it's not going to be good for them, right? Is there anything in Revelation about the gates being open that seems like... Yeah. Somewhere? A lot of the 60s of Isaiah gets picked up in Revelation 21. It's the background for it. Verse oh, 15 is pretty beautiful, too. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. You will suck the milk of nations... And you shall nurse at the breast of kings, and you shall know that I, Yahweh, am your savior, savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. And then again with the money, again with the precious stones. Verse 17, instead of bronze, I will bring gold. Instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze, and so on. Verse 18, no more violence. This is something we've heard repeatedly, right? Violence shall no more be heard in your land. Devastation and destruction within your borders. You will call your wall salvation and your gates praise. Then it talks about the sun and the moon, just like in Revelation. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. I think this is the first time that we've read that in Isaiah, where not just the ruler is going to be righteous, and not just God's judgment is going to be righteous, but the actual inhabitants of that future city, they themselves will do the right thing. Because look, even if everything else is great, but we treat each other like garbage, it's still not the kind of age that I want to be a part of. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. Sounds like Abraham's covenant, right? <laughs> the branch of my planting, the work of my hands. And why is God doing all this? Why has he established the kingdom age? Why does he lift up Jerusalem and bring all this wealth in and establish it in such a way that I may be glorified, is what he says at the end of verse 21 there. He does it all to his own glory. He says that again in chapter 61 as well. The kingdom is all about God getting what he originally wanted. And so it is his glory. It's, it's, it's his majesty, his brilliance, his magnificence being displayed before everyone. Look at chapter 61. This will be our last chapter. <laughs> Number eight. Okay. Chapter 61 is incredibly important for Jesus. It's one of his background verses. In fact, uh, he uses it in his first sermon. His first public sermon, he uses as his text, Isaiah 61, the first part of it. 61.1, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that what? He may be glorified. Right. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up 
the former devastations, they shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many gener- generations. What do you see here in the first part of chapter 61 here? A reversal, yeah. Yeah, those who are mourned are getting comforted and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, a turnaround. I like that. A lot of comfort, right? A lot of comfort for those who have, who have suffered. Verse 4 talks about rebuilding, right? That they would be rebuilding. And then verse 5 talks about how strangers are going to take care of your flocks rather than you taking care of the stranger's flocks. <laughs> In verse 6, but you shall be called priests of the Lord. I remember reading something about that in Revelation too, right? Priests of the Lord, they shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, the reproach, right? You shall have a double portion. Do you think, and all these verses, it seems like there are other nations. Yeah, yeah. There are other peoples Yeah. envious or not envious or necessarily are looking and giving glory to this kingdom mm-hmm. city that is set up. Yeah. How do you reconcile that with the idea that there will be no other... Do you think there will be other peoples? Well, let's say Jesus comes back today. That would be exciting. <laughs> you know, I don't think in the moment he came back, every non-believer would immediately die. You know, Jesus comes, but like... And we know resurrection happens. We're kind of like getting into some New Testament theology now. But other people would still be around, at least until the final judgment. I don't separate the kingdom out, and we'll get to this later. I don't think the kingdom is a thousand years. I think the kingdom is forever. And like you have phase one where Jesus comes back, and then phase two when it, it goes on forever in the final judgment. And, you know, there's different theories about how that all works out, right? But that, I don't really want to get into that kind of a discussion in this class. Just because the people who seem the most confident often have the biggest holes in their theories. (laughs) So I I want to stick as broadly as possible to just the kingdom age in general. Not that you couldn't research that and and have have your views of that. I think that's fine too. Anyhow, back to Isaiah 61. It says at the end of verse 7, Therefore, in their land they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. Right? A beautiful image of God's people enjoying themselves in the kingdom age, rebuilding stuff, and like Josiah said, with other nations there as well. Chapter 65. I got one more. I guess all men are liars, right? So, sorry about that. One, one last Isaiah chapter to consider. Isaiah 65. As for Isaiah 61, this is where we get the idea of being priests of God. That's not before this. Repairing ruined cities is in here. But chapter 65, we get some final thoughts. Verse 17, Isaiah 65, 17, uh, to the end of the chapter, says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. Where else would we read that? Revelation Revelation 21.1, right? Former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. See, when you read the word create, you think make something that wasn't there before. Because that's, I mean, that's what I think, right? But look, what, look how God's using the word create here. Because uh, he says, I'm going to create a new heavens and a new earth. It makes you think, oh, he's going to get rid of this old earth and, and just make a new one and replace it. But then he uses it here of Jerusalem. 
For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy. That's not how we use the word create. That's a different way of thinking about the word. Is creating purpose, not substance. Right? He's not going to form a new Jerusalem. He's going to make the new Jerusalem a place of joy instead of sadness. And he uses the word create to describe that. So I think we have to, this is one of those times where I think we have to adjust our ear to how the Bible uses words rather than the other way around. Well, let's read on. I will create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. Verse 19, I will rejoice in Jerusalem, be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall be in it an infant who lives but a few days. Amen, Rebecca? Or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old. Well, that's young, huh? I don't think so. And the sinner, a hundred years old, shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree <laughs> shall be the days of my people. Isn't that, isn't that such a great analogy? For the days of a tree shall be the days of my people. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before, this is amazing, look at that, verse 24. Before they call, I will answer. <laughs> it's like you're starting to pray and God already gives you the answer. <laughs> for before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. So, again, this is kind of a remix of what we've seen earlier in chapter 11 and some other places. And it's just a vision of beauty and rejoicing. And if you died at 100 years old, people would be like, man, it's too young to die. It's just too young. Right? I mean, w- what age would we say that about today? 20 or even 50. Somebody's just too young to die. 50 or 30. At 100, it's just too young. It's so tragic. Right? It's really something. And, you know, we, we, can, we can talk about how, how this gets filled in and relates to the, the, the final timeline and all that later. But just, just take it as it is. Combining together all of these different prophecies from Isaiah. Do you see the vision? Do you see it in your, in your mind? An age of splendor, of glory, of God blessing His city, of God blessing His people, of the people rejoicing, not having anything to worry about. Death is swallowed up forever. People are crying out, this is our God, we waited for Him, and here He is to deliver us. And the animals are at peace, and you're eating meat and wine, drinking wine, and people are singing songs of thanksgiving, and people are making stuff. And, and they don't make stuff, and then there's a financial crisis, and they lose their house. You know what I mean? They get to enjoy the work of their hands, because justice reigns supreme, and so does peace. All right, so that ends our time of focus on Isaiah What we'll do next time is look at the kingdom in the other prophets. And I'll just kind of mash up a bunch of the other prophets, and then we'll get into the New Testament and take it from there. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode. 
for next week, we'll have Lecture 4, The Kingdom and the Other Prophets, and take a look at a number of other prophecies. I think this is something that can really encourage and build your faith and hope in what God plans to do with this old world. Uh, Just before we close out, I wanted to mention I've posted a document called The Restorationist Manifesto, and I am super excited about it. I'm going to be presenting it at the 26th Theological Conference sponsored by Restoration Fellowship, and it is a call to get back to the Bible and adopt some restorationist values. So check that out. It's an article. It's not a podcast. Hopefully I'll be able to record my presentation, and then we will have a podcast available. But in the meantime, I just wanted to read out what Randy Kasher wrote. He said, Thank you for your interesting and challenging article. I appreciate the honesty with which a restorationist has in examining the scriptures with a view to recover the faith once delivered to the saints, while not ignoring the contribution of others throughout history. I also appreciate how a restorationist can bypass some of the difficult issues arising when conversing with believers in various denominations, as reflected in your mock conversation. Then he quotes this little conversation that I put in the paper, Uh, You can check that out if you're interested in it, but it's the idea of identifying as restorationist so that you're basing your identity on your posture towards truth rather than your particular present convictions or the content of your doctrine currently. So if this interests you, check it out, restitutio.org. Also, if you haven't yet, please subscribe in your podcast app in your phone or your tablet. This way you get the next episode automatically delivered to you when it comes out on Sunday. And remember, friends, the truth has nothing to fear.